Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. There's been a lot of people, countries, governments in denial about uranium that it's not for them but i think with that latest cop is a realization that actually uranium is going to be a much greater part of the world's future power requirements and more countries committed to it either new power plants or showing a lot more interest than they were and also i think a realization that solar and wind despite the great prospects for both it's not permanent power it's more intermittent and got its own share of problems in terms of establishing it, environmental and so forth. So I think people realise that whatever you think about nuclear, nuclear is a necessity of the world that the world's going to go sort of net zero over time. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Uranium and nuclear stocks are off to an explosive start this year, so to speak. But will the momentum continue? Joining me to split the atom in this episode is Peter Chilton from Under the Radar Report. G'day, Peter. Hi. Hi, Phil. Thanks very much for coming over. Peter Chilton specialises in small caps and especially mining. He studied as a geologist before switching to finance over 30 years ago. He's also an active investor and avid reader. But Peter, we were just talking before I turned the microphone on about your background working in the Pilbara and Cobar. Well, I, actually, that. I studied mining engineering, not geology. Oh, okay. Well, that's on your bio on the website. Oh, well, 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 well. <laughs> shouldn't be that. <laughs> okay, that's okay. Yeah. But yeah, what was it like? I mean, you came from England. Yeah. And did you go straight into the mining industry? No, I worked in the mining industry in the UK. Yeah. For a company called British Gypsum. Mm-hmm. And as a student, it actually worked out at Mydiza in Queensland. So I'd been here before. Yeah. But then after a number of years working in the UK, I came out to the 
working in the mining industry in the iron ore industry in the Pilbara. Yeah. Tom Price, Hammers the Iron. Okay, what was that like? It was very good. I enjoyed yeah. it. I mm-hmm. mean, it was a very enjoyable, large-scale open pit mining. Yeah. It's a lot bigger today than it was then, and also a very interesting, scenic part of the world to live in. Mm, mm. And it's interesting as well, isn't it, that the FTSE, the UK stock market, that is quite heavy with miners as well, isn't it? It is. London was a big mining centre, mm-hmm. you know, the London Stock Exchange. And the London Metals Exchange as well. The yeah. Metals Exchange, yeah. yeah. They enjoyed the extractive industries. That's right. I mean, there's mining companies based in, in the UK, all over the world, operating in South America, Africa particularly, mm-hmm. Australia, so it's always been a big mining centre. Yeah. And what about cobalt? Was that different? What's cobalt? What do they mine in cobalt? Cobalt is very varied. It's had a long mining history. I suppose the main things mined there would be copper and gold. And the mine I worked at focused on lead and silver, lead, zinc and silver. Mm. So it's a very varied mineral field, lots of different commodities. And they're still exploring and finding things there, even today. So do you think Australia is really lucky in the kind of minerals that we have under the ground? Well, it's a very large country, so you'd expect, I suppose, to be plenty of minerals there. And it's very spread out. But I guess it is lucky, particularly Western Australia, where particularly well endowed. Mm. And all commodities, and it seems that not only the, the major commodities like copper and gold and so forth, but big focus on iron ore, now big focus on lithium. Mm. Mm. So we're here today to talk about nuclear power. Why do you think nuclear has got such a sunny, bright future? Well, nuclear isn't new. I mean, we've had nuclear power stations for years, probably 40 years. Not in Australia? Not in Australia. I mean... I can think of quite recently, as well, a few years ago, with one of my boys, uh, Dungeness, uh, where there's Dungeness Nuclear Power Station. Just see this big power station, take it for granted, nothing strange about it. So it's been around for a long time, and it's really just the focus on going low carbon or zero carbon, which has brought the focus back to other forms, and a realisation that, well, wind and solar is very helpful, it's intermittent, and still new, whereas nuclear has been around for a long, long time and it can provide the very valuable baseload power which people need to keep the lights on no matter what the weather's doing. Mm. Although we're pretty squeamish here in Australia about it, aren't we, compared to the rest of the world? Well, they even ban uranium for a while. Mm. I don't know why, really. I mean, the rest of the world is far more comfortable with nuclear and Australia's just going to have to get more comfortable with nuclear. Yeah, do you think that's inevitable? Well, nothing's inevitable, but I think what's happening is there's a development of these, of these small modular reactors, which make having a, a relatively modest-sized nuclear power plant more palatable and safer than what it had been in the past and more cost-effective. So we may see that, but maybe not in the near term. It might be 40 or 50 years away, but I think it's possible we will get it. Mm. What's been happening to the price of uranium? That's been going pretty well, hasn't it? Well... Uranium has been in the doldrums for many years, especially since Fukushima in Japan, the Chisami there. And so it's been in the doldrums and people have been saying, well, nuclear is going to take off. But for a number of years, it didn't. It didn't really do anything, despite all the prospects looking very good. So it's really only in the last 12 months or so that the price has really taken off. It's pretty much more than doubled, really, from what it was before. So, you know, that's probably been of a shock to the system for some people, but... You could say it was inevitable they would do eventually. So is that about supply or demand? It's a bit of both. I mean, clearly you can see demand's really picking up or looking further out, bearing in mind the number of power plants that are being built, 
particularly by the Chinese, but also by the intent of other countries around the world. And the number of new mines has stagnated. That There's been no real decent price to attract new, new players. And it's quite difficult in many, many parts of the world to establish a, a uranium mine. So nothing's really happened on the production front for a number of years. And it's only just beginning to, to break out now with companies like Paladin starting production very soon. Where, whereabouts does uranium come from currently? Which countries? It's spread around the world quite a bit. But I suppose the key countries would be places like Kazakhstan, which is probably the largest producer. Also countries like Namibia in southwest Africa. Australia is quite a large producer, particularly of BHP's Olympic Dam mine. And also a place like Russia, quite a big producer. So it's scattered near, I think it's, is it Niger or Niger in, in Africa? They're quite a big producer. So it's spread around, but you know, only in a relatively small number of countries. So listeners might be aware that we had the latest COP28 climate summit in Dubai. What's the significance of nuclear after that meeting? There's been a lot of people, countries, governments in denial about uranium, that it's not for them. But I think with that latest COP, there's a realisation that actually uranium is going to be much greater part of the world's future power requirements and more countries committed to it, either new power plants or showing a lot more interest than they were. And also, I think, a realisation that solar and wind, despite the great prospects for both, it's not permanent power, it's more intermittent and got its own share of problems in terms of establishing it, environmental and so forth. So I think people realise that whatever you think about nuclear, nuclear is a necessity if the world if the world's going to go sort of net zero over time. Mm. It's funny because I've had these conversations with friends, you know, and I sort of say, well, why not nuclear power? And it's, But wasn't there a CSI report a couple of years ago that came out that said that wind and solar were so much cheaper here in Australia than nuclear, that there's no need for it here in Australia, but they didn't actually factor in the transmission costs? Yeah, well, I mean, transmission is, is a big issue, as we've been reading about recently. But I think when you're looking at the cost of one or the other, or people are looking at all the costs of what's been established or what will be required to establish nuclear capacity today without taking into account the changes in technology which are, are going through, especially the small modular reactors, which are pretty new and unproven to some point. But I think you've got to accept that once you pursue something with scale, the costs are going to come down. I mean, after all, up until recently, people were saying that solar and wind were more expensive than coal. But that's no longer the case. So if you pursue something and with commitment, then costs do have a habit of changing. And the transmission is an important thing. I mean, you can, you know, the wind and so it could well be in some isolated location. It's very difficult to put in the transmission with, with all the environmental issues with that, whereas nuclear can be much closer to general populations. Mm. If they'll uh, allow them to be built out, even though, but in here in the middle of Sydney, or not on the outskirts of Sydney, we've got a a nuclear reactor, haven't we? Well, we have. Yeah, and people aren't aware of it. Most people don't even know about it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's also, I think, one of the great promoters of nuclear has been recently, last year's Miss America 2023, in fact, is a nuclear engineer 
and has spent yeah. a lot of her time promoting the, nu- the use of nuclear power and mm. visiting nuclear power stations. She's just stepped down. There's a new Miss America at the right. moment. Grace Stanky, if you ever right. want to follow her on Twitter, she's a great advocate for nuclear power. Right. So where is it mined in Australia? I mean, uh, the name Roxby Downs comes to mind. Is that one of the Well, places? that's in South Australia. Yeah. yeah. The former Western Mining Project acquired by BHP. So that's, I think that's, as, as, a, as a producer, it's, it's quite a globally, quite a significant producer, but in terms of what it produces per year, although BHP doesn't often talk about it, there has been or there was a substantial uranium business up in the Northern Territory with a, a mine called Nalbleck, which closed down quite a few years ago. What was that mine? Nalbleck. Mm-hmm. Nalbleck. Yeah. And then also ERA, which is also closed down. But that was a very significant operation. The other operations or future operations is Boss Energy at the Honeymoon Mine, which is in South Australia. And there's quite a lot of projects which have the prospect of coming to fruition over the next few years. West Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia. All those states seem to have various projects, fairly early stage in some respects, but definitely with the sort of resources which are capable of supporting an operation subject to, you know, just the market being continued to be good for uranium. Is it a difficult mineral to mine and process? Or element, I should say, yeah. Not specifically, but clearly it needs another layer of supervision because the, obviously the uranium that you're producing is quite potentially quite dangerous. So there's always got to be a lot more environmental things behind it and obviously environmental objections and you know, more hurdles before mm-hmm. you can actually get a uranium project. But technically, I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's certainly surmountable. But again, there's a lot of examples around the world which you can feed off. So we're basing this interview on a recent research report that you published with Under the Radar, where you looked at some of the companies. Tell us about a couple of the companies that produce uranium here in Australia as a way of getting exposure to this. Well, the first one is Paladin, which actually their operations in Namibia, but it is an Australian company. And they have operated the mine in Namibia before. It's already, they're just reopening an existing mine. Obviously, they're improving on it. So that's proven, and they'll be opening quite fairly soon at quite a significant sort of £8 million per year is, is sort of their target sort of rate. It will probably a while to do that. So that's definitely something which is of interest, even though it's offshore. And then onshore, there's Boss Energy, which is basically reopening a mine that was operated, the Honeymoon Mine, operating in South Australia. And that's due to open very shortly, you know, sort of within months. And that's also tried and proven. But there again, they've improved on the technology and, and the plant layout to improve efficiency. So they're the two that you can invest in, mm-hmm. which have that near-term production, which, of course, is that means you're benefiting from the sort of uranium prices which we're seeing today. Whereas a lot of the other companies, you're going to have to wait several years before they get into production. So there's not the immediate benefit to cash flow mm. with the higher prices. It's always worthwhile looking at these because we're looking at a new idea here, a new investment mm. idea. And it's people always want to catch a macro wave, they sort of suddenly mm. say. I mean, the example, of course, is lithium over the yeah. last few years. Yeah. And people think, okay, lithium. But timing the catching of that macro wave is always very difficult. Yeah. What do you think of the forces playing out on this wave are at the moment? Well, we've just seen this large increase in spot price to just over $100. It's come back up a few dollars, but it's still a very strong price. And there's a lot of people out there sort of suggesting it can go a lot higher, 150 200 maybe. That's a spot price. It may not necessarily be the same price as the contract price that 
is the price that most people, most producers are likely to get. What's the difference between those two? Well, I mean, the spot price is just the marginal amount of material available, whereas the contract is the negotiation between the miner and the utility, and the utilities is all about relationships and so forth. So sometimes if you have a strong relationship with a customer, you know, there's an agreement on a more stable price rather than one that's going to be volatile, which may mean there's like a, a floor and a, a ceiling. And be fair to say those floors and fallen ceilings have risen, gone up, but may still not be, you know, at the high levels of spot prices that we're seeing at the moment or will be seeing in the future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, certainly, you know, relationships are very important in that industry. I derailed your answer there. We were talking about the macro wave and what to watch oh, out yeah. for when trying to catch this macro wave yeah. of uranium yeah. or lithium or whatever commodity yeah. is being talked about. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, as far as the investors are concerned, I think it's more to go. But obviously, the easy money has been made, I suppose, you know, in, in the stocks. It's always that way, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you, it, when it, you it, finally it, hear about it, it's too but, late. But I guess it's going to be volatile. Mm. So there's going to be corrections and price pullbacks, and there may be opportunities there. And there may also be, there will always be opportunities that with the price going high, there's lots of explorers. Obviously, the level of speculation increases with an explorer, but there's going to be a few explorers that really find a really good project. And so if you can find one of those explorers which finds a really good project, then that may be a good opportunity for investors as well. Some projects will be average, but there might be one exceptional one that really has very good prospects. So that's the one that where there's an opportunity, if you can find it. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find it, we love yeah. that. <laughs> Always a caveat, yeah. isn't there? Yes. These companies, well, Pallet and Boss Energy, what is it about the financials that make them stand out to you as opposed to other uranium miners? Well, I guess in both their cases, they're financed. You know, so they've got... Through they've equity, got the money, yeah. Through yeah. equity raisings or debt, and some of that debt you know, comes from well credentialed financial providers because they've got, say, off-take agreements or track records with customers, so they've got credibility. So the key thing, they've got finance. Both of them have advanced their projects in terms of reopening them and modernising and installing new equipment to the point that both are very close to production. So that's the difference, whereas some others might have nothing on the ground to look at. It's just... There's a big resource, but that has to be monetized somehow. You know, the money is always to be raised to uh, to finance the project. But Boss and, and Paladin, the hard work's been done. Uh, sort of commissioning can be quite difficult, but hopefully the, you'd assume since they've had a track record, that will be just a formality. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. 
We'll get back to the show right after this brief message. Why am I buying, holding or selling a share? If you can't answer that basic question, then you don't have a plan. The best investors are ruthless in executing their plans. I've been fortunate to meet many great investors on the podcast. Tony Kynaston is one of the best. He has a clear and systematic approach to investing that is honest, sensible and methodical. It's called QAV, Quality at Value. QAV now offer an excellent light plan for only $29 per month. You can follow their buy and sell recommendations and learn the ropes. And the first month is free using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Go to qavpodcast.com.au to sign up. That's qavpodcast.com.au using the promo code SFBLIGHT. Past performance is not a guarantee of future returns. Please read the QAV FSG and consult a financial professional before investing. I receive a small commission for services I recommend and I only recommend services I use myself. So the other kind of companies you're talking about, are they like the junior uranium miners? Well, some are more advanced. I mean, mm. one we've covered mm. is Bannerman. Mm-hmm. That's also in Namibia. And they've given sort of target dates for when they want to get into production. And they're far down the track in terms of the feasibility studies and things like that. But, I mean, they've still got a, although they would have been talking to banks and financiers and so forth, they've still got to finalise financing They've still got to finance final designs and so forth for a project. So that's, you know, that's probably three years, maybe four years away before they're in production, you know, assuming things go smoothly. So a very good project. The share price has has got good resources, long life, expansion potential, lots of positive aspects, but they're still a number of years away from production. So that's want to watch but not benefiting from the cash flow for a while so your report says that you have to be aware of junior uranium miners why is that well i mean you can get carried away by the prospects of a company but then forget that you still need to do all the feasibility studies you still need to make a final investment decision you still need to get financing you have to build it find people who will build it build it to budget not it doesn't go over budget Still a lot of hurdles to do. So, and there's going to be a lot of companies that all they have really is just a, a concept and they have to get from concept to project. And people might, as an investor, might buy into the concept, but the reality is they're still a long way from finalising that project. So these companies that have a concept, is this concept based on the reality of an, is it pronounced assay, assay or... Yeah, I mean... They, they know, they, what's, they, yeah, they know I mean, there's something done, there and they've... They've done extensive exploration. You know, they've been drilling and they've got drilling dissections and they've got grades and they've probably converted that into some sort of resource which looks promising, maybe. But a lot depends on the grade. And the other thing people forget about with these projects is the metallurgy. You know, you can have a grade, but what process do you use to extract the uranium what recovery do you get? Is it something that where the metallurgy is straightforward off the shelf or is it, has it got complications? And often we find with projects, not just your aim, metallurgy, you know, it fails at that hurdle because it suddenly becomes the recovery is low or there's some problem requires more acid consumption or something about it that makes the recovery more difficult, more problematic and perhaps not economic. At what stage so, do they, companies find out about that uh, well, the metallurgical ca- part of a it? A company should, at a fairly early stage, do some metallurgical work because you can't design a plant until you've done that. And lots of companies do do extensive metallurgical work, but sometimes 
they don't do enough. And that would be a big criticism. Some people, some companies may assume the process is okay. But, I mean, I think one of the, we don't cover it, but Peninsula in, in the States, they've got a project. And they're, they're basically reopening, but they have problems with their original project because they got the meteorological sign wrong. So that derailed that project. Mm. So that's something to be very wary of. So are there any particular risks to investing in the uranium sector as opposed to, I mean, it's, as currently it sounds like it's a, the same sort of risk you'd have in any yeah. kind of commodity or any kind of mineral that you're taking out of the ground. Mm. I guess there's always risks with anything that suddenly somebody might find an alternative means of energy or something. Mm. You know, there's always some other alternative, which means that, you know, people don't need to use uranium. That applies to, I suppose, anything, lithium, anything. And there's always a risk there could be some major disaster somewhere which puts people off using it for some reason or accelerates an alternative, another Fukushima or some major disaster somewhere. So that's a sort of risk, a sort of uh, unexpected risk that might come through. Yeah, that would be a big risk. Yeah. It mm. doesn't apply really to something like iron ore, for example, no. or lithium. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Some sort of public backlash, something like that. Mm. Which is, it's had many times over the years, yeah. hasn't it? Uranium yeah. and nuclear power. The track record of uranium has been very good, really, in the last few years, with no major action. The track record's been pretty good recently. So, and the technology is improving all the time. So hopefully in the future, the, the track record should continue to be very good for new projects. Mm. But, you know, things can always go wrong. What do you love about mining, the industry? Well, I guess there's something very creative about mining. I mean, I've seen projects, I mean, I've visited projects when there was a resource there, but absolutely nothing there, just uh, a lot of drill holes and things. And then I might have visited the project a few years later, and there's now they're constructing something. Then a few years after that, you know, there's a full-blown project. So I suppose I'm old enough to have seen that. I mean, you look at a project like Ernest Henry, which is a major copper project, which is now largely controlled by Evolution now, but it's had several owners. And I remember the first drill hole, which was very, at the time, I think it was Savage Resources made the drill hole, and then there's a bit of a dispute about who owned it because of Western Mining. So there's all that. So you'd visit the site with all this controversy, and then eventually that was sorted out. It became a project. It was only going to be an open pit for the mine life for about eight years, eight, ten years. And now it's a big underground mine and it's still going. So that's, if you look at, that's creating wealth and you keep pursuing it and that's proved to be a massive resource. So I suppose that's one of the things why it's quite quite enjoyable. Sometimes the industry gets a bad name because of the environmental concerns. Mm. Do you think that's something that's been improving or it's, um, look, it, it's not necessarily a deserved yeah. reputation? It's been improving all the time. I mean, the, before you establish a new mine these days, enormous hurdles, environmental hurdles. And I think if you look at a company's annual report these days, it's full of environmental issues and human resources and things. So I think all the companies realise, especially with the pension funds being shareholders, they've just got to be more responsible and have a major accident or spill of something polluting a river. is just unacceptable. So the track record is, I think, much improved. You still get the odd accidents, but a lot of the problems now, back in the olden days when there were no controls, 
And I suppose that a lot of that was the fault of the legislation as well, rather than just blaming the company. At the end of the day, a lot depends on having the right legislation to make sure mining companies do do the right thing. And they do a lot of restoration these days as well. There's a lot of restoration. Yeah, once a mine's finished and reached the end of its usable life, it will... Yeah, uh, it's obviously in the middle of nowhere and you've just made a big hole. You can't fill the hole in. But then in some cases they've been turned into recreational areas, depending where it is. So, yeah, I mean, there's a big emphasis on restoration. Mm. So getting back to nuclear power and all these forces that are swirling around because of transition to renewable energy, do you think coal has a future for a while? Or what kind of horizon are we looking at for coal? I guess coal still has a future because there's a lot of power stations in certain countries like India and South Korea and Japan, which are reliant on coal. So they will continue for a while. But ultimately, coal mines have, have a mine life and some of them are, you know, are fairly limited. So ultimately, you will see a wind down of the coal industry as the mines run out of coal. And as governments refuse to extend leases or grant new leases... Alternative companies themselves say that we'll continue to a certain date, but after that we don't want to continue beyond that date, and BHP's sort of been doing that sort of thing. Mm. So there will be a future for coal for quite a number of years, and some, some people would say, unfortunately, it's just that some countries, even Australia, is, is relying on coal mining, coal fuel power stations for the next 10 years or so. But obviously with time, they'll generally dwindle, I suppose. Mm. But some depends on what the foreign policy of these other countries are, whether it be China or India and what they do. They need to find an alternative source of power. And for some countries, maybe not that easy to find an alternative source. Mm. And, of course, gas has been in the news, of course, because of the situation with Russia. And also some see it as a, more of a transitional fuel to mm. renewables. Is that the case? Well, it is. Mm. But I think a problem with Gas as a transitional fuel is that gas has become more expensive. Well, coal's become more expensive as well. So what may, where you had cheap gas, it was very attractive, but it's no longer cheap. So it's just a limitation to what gas can do, I think. Mm. Particularly, in, and in some cases, gas is in short supply. It's fairly short on the East Coast of Australia because we export so much. So there's still a lot of attraction if you can get solar to, to work and get the transmission right to do solar mm. and wind. So tell us about your role at Under the Radar. You're an analyst there, are you? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And specialising in small companies and mining especially or other sectors as well? I mean, I'm a mining engineer originally. I mean, I have looked at small caps and under industrial companies for many years. I used to work for a fund manager called Constellation Capital Management and I used to cover both there. I also used to work at a place called Aegis Equities Research where I did all industrials, no resources at all because I wanted a break from resources. So under the radar, I cover both. So I got a blend of both mining and non-mining. And while we look primarily at the small caps, we also do a blue chip report as well. So I sometimes look at the large caps. So I could be looking you know, at Woodside or, or BHP, but I might also be looking at an industrial like CSR or Boral or something. So I guess I've become very adept, I suppose, at covering lots of sectors and so forth. And after all, they're all companies, you know, companies, it's the same challenges, cash flow, capital, strong management. It's all the same things you look at, whether it be a resource company or a or an industrial company or small caps or large caps. Are there a lot of passionate and robust discussions at your roundtables with the other analysts? All the time. Yep. All the time. And well, that's one of the good things. 
Because I think individual investors need to understand that you know, yeah. it's great to have your ideas tested and that when you're learning about the share market and learning about investing in individual mm. companies, it's mm. great to have sounding boards to challenge your ideas. Yeah, I mean, lots of times we might have looked at a company which looked reasonable and then someone would do a bit more work and we decide not to cover it. I mean, quite a few times I've, I've looked at companies and said to Richard, look, I don't like this company, you know, there's something about it and there might be a good reason. Or I've discovered something about this company which the share's not performing because of this. There's some something innate in this company and, you know, we should stop covering it or not cover it at all or something mm. like that. You know, so there's a lot of debate and it's a healthy debate. I mean, some people talk about working from home, that's the trend. Well, of course, we're working in office and we talk. So we're always talking in person. So that's good. Do you have any advice for a first-time investor, someone who's approaching the share market for the first time? It's very hard. It can be quite hard, but I suppose seek good advice. Just be careful. Don't speculate. You know, do your homework first or use research that where the homework's been done for you. Don't invest more than what you could afford to lose. You know, mm. just be careful with your money. I think there's one of the things that comes across from talking to so many people is to cut your losses as well. Because so many people, they hear about a stock. Someone's yeah. told them. They buy the stock. It drops 50% and then they don't know what to do about mm. it. You know, because these days you can put your money in funds or ETFs yeah. or whatever, you know, where someone yeah. else is looking after the money. But mm. if you get the, the bug, you really do have to do a lot more homework and build up a bit more conviction, yeah. don't you? You do. I mean, you need to be in a stock for a reason. And if that reason's changed, your thesis or your conviction has changed on that stock, then you have to sell it. And it's not good to buy stocks on the way down thinking you're getting cheaper. Because that stock's going down maybe for a reason. You know, there might be a strong reason. And it may not always be evident what the reason is. There can be so many reasons. Yeah, there can be so many many reasons. Mm. One of the the hard things about stocks is knowing when to sell and cutting your losses if you're making a loss or taking profit or whatever. So you take advantage of, of the strong prices when they're there and not having to sell when the stock's in some sort of downtrend or plunging down. Mm. Okay, well, the nuclear report, we'll make that available as a download in the blog post. And if you want to find out more about the reports that Peter have produced on these particular companies, it's under the radar report. I think there might be a free trial or something, but we'll check and make sure that there's a link in the blog post where people can find out more about this. Peter Chilton, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Phil. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to Shares for... Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. For beginners, you can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. 